Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Alex Alessandro Arduino, who is the co-editor together with Jue Gong of Securing the Belt and Road Initiative, Risk Assessment, Private Security, and Special Insurances along the new wave of Chinese outbound investments. It's a book that I've had the honor to contribute a chapter to. Alex, welcome to the uh, to the show. And I wonder if you could begin a bit about telling telling us uh, about yourself and how you came to uh, edit this book. Uh, first of all, James, thank you very much for having me today and for hosting me in your podcast. Uh, we have been working for quite a long time with Huegon, uh, co-directing uh, the book uh, on security on the Belt and Road. And uh, I take the advantage now to thank you for participating uh, in a chapter on the book with several other very important uh, authors and academicians that have been working with us uh, on the topic. Basically, I've been interested in researching on the security on the Belt and Road Initiative since uh, its inception in 2013, when President Xi uh, launched the overall idea of uh, that was at the time not even called One Belt, One Road, and what now has been more widely known about the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, Before that, uh, my research uh, were focused on socioeconomic development of uh, Chinese investment outside of China, especially related to CIC. China Investment Corporation as a Chinese sovereign wealth fund. But slowly I've been moving from more financial focused analysis on non-financial area and especially one on security. Uh, a previous book of mine that was focused on that aspect was related basically to one question. How Beijing was going to provide security for Chinese personnel and infrastructure along the Belt and Road. At the time, the title of the book was China Private Army, protecting the New Silk Road. And nowadays, the question is not only, in my personal opinion, quite important, but it's renewing and it's evolving along the time as the Belt and Road Initiative is evolving quite uh, fast uh, as well. Basically, uh, in my previous research, uh, I was looking at the fact of how the Chinese private security company are evolving from local security operating in China to international company able to maneuver in a very high risk area abroad. 
In, in this respect, I've been doing uh, research in the past uh, in the interaction between private military, private security, as well as the impact uh, of uh, financial and non-financial uh, threat and risk to foreign investment. And in this respect, uh, our latest book, uh, Securing the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, presents uh, an array of uh, problem of risk and way to manage and apprise this risk along the Belt and Road Initiative. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not only related to the fact that most of the risk can involve financial problem ranging from economic crisis uh, and the currency devaluation, asset nationalization, just to name a few. But then uh, there is also a non-financial risk component that uh, is extremely important and has to be assessed. And the book focuses uh, on that. Uh, uh, I spend uh, most of my research in time uh, in mainland China. I've been for more than 20 years in the People's Republic of China. In the last four years, uh, I've been very lucky to have the chance to co-direct uh, a program that now become a center at the Shanghai Academy of Social Science uh, with uh, the support of the University of Torino and now with the support of the Polytechnic of Torino. Uh, we have been researching uh, security and crisis management, mostly for SOE, the Chinese state-owned enterprises going abroad, and the impact that these investments have in several areas along the Belt and Road. One of the areas that we look at more was Central Asia, and slowly we are moving also to South Asia in areas like Pakistan and Afghanistan. But all over the Belt and Road, initiative, we are looking at a way to have proper risk appraisal and uh, risk mitigation. Uh, another part of my previous research, as I mentioned before, was mostly on uh, economic and now slowly is moving to defense economic uh, and non-traditional security. So that it uh, in a nutshell. I hope to have covered your first uh, question. It's an impressive record. Uh, before we get into the security issues themselves, let's just talk for a minute about the Belt and Road Initiative itself. At the very outset of the book, you talk about the goals of the uh, initiative, and you mention connectivity, unimpeded trade, financial integration, but you also mention policy coordination, which raises the question of what the uh, Belt and Road Initiative really is about and whether or not it in many ways is not an attempt to uh, create a cornerstone for a new world order. Yeah, on this, I think uh, it's a quite uh, compelling and very debated uh, problem up to now. Uh, in the name itself, uh, I mean, in the English translation of Idailu, we find already what is uh, the Chinese proper point of view, Belt and Road Initiative. It's into that. It's an initiative. It's not something that can be called a Marshall Plan as uh, there is no political intent from the Chinese side. While from uh, other part of the world, 
the reading has been uh, quite different uh, and in several parts almost opposite, uh, as I have to say, because uh, the Belt and Road uh, uh, is not considered uh, an initiative, but is considered not even a strategy, but a grand strategy. So when uh, the influx of Chinese money, Chinese worker is moving along the Belt and Road, in some area there are some questions of possible hidden agenda from the Chinese side. Uh, at the moment, uh, uh, most of the area in which these investments are involved is just a matter of fact of uh, renegotiating what have been uh, done in the past in terms uh, of uh, grant, in terms of swap, in terms uh, of uh, financing, and what are the return. From my personal point of view, definitely there is something in the middle. As to say, the initiative uh, is evolving, is evolving pretty fast, uh, and uh, the Chinese uh, diplomatic economy is uh, having uh, uh, and is going to have a long-standing repercussion on uh, international order. Uh, having said that, uh, I'm not precisely pointing uh, uh, if it is just an initiative or a grand strategy, but uh, no matter what, uh, in my personal opinion, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, it is a game changer and then it's going to affect not only economics, but also policy and politics. Um, security, securing personnel and investment would obviously fall partly into the notion of a larger geopolitical scheme, and indeed in many ways does create building blocks for a new world order. In that context, I want to look at your definition of security which in terms of threats is, uh, is, is defined in the broadest sense of the word. So with other words, instability, religious and ethnic tension, fragile legal infrastructure, political risks, criminality, environmental dis, uh, degradation, and social in terms of lack of um, corporate social responsibility. Perhaps you want to elaborate on what really the threat matrix is to Chinese investment overseas. Yes, as you mentioned, basically these are all uh, overall all the non-financial threat uh, that uh, Chinese corporation acknowledge uh, in the risk associated with outbound direct investment in emerging economy. Uh, there is up to now a quite high rate of failure due to this kind of risk. Uh, one of the basic problems uh, that we found during our research is the fact that with some notable exception uh, in terms uh, of the Chinese state-owned enterprises uh, in the energy and ICT sector, a lot uh, of Chinese SOE, due to their public nature and commercial capacity, tend uh, to blur the lines uh, between commercial and political factor. And this is quite uh, a big issue because uh, they always think uh, in one term that their contract and their procuring or their investment and infrastructure is too big to fail. And no matter what, Beijing is going to come in support. And especially in case of crisis, make it not only a financial crisis, but a crisis that erupt for violence, maybe criminal or political violence. Still, there is the too optimistically uh, presumption that Beijing is going to support in case of crisis. Uh, in the past uh, happened, in the future definitely is not going to happen so often. 
There was a recent call by Sinosure talking about the Chinese investment in the railway electrified line between Djibouti and Addis Ababa. And the the loss that was incurred was a lesson to the fact that Beijing is not going to finance unreliable or not efficient project in the future. The same call was made by President Xi Jinping himself just a few months ago. Back to the security um, threat matrix, uh, basically, as you mentioned, one part that is quite important uh, in some time, terrorism or uh, criminal violence is uh, overrated, while uh, the need for environmental protection, corporate social responsibility, it's quite important, not only during the project planning and planification, but also during uh, the, the project when the state-owned enterprises and the private company are involved in the construction. Just to make an example, if you look uh, at a small area, uh, even a remote area, in which a Chinese road or railway have to cross, and then there is a sudden influx of hundred or even thousands of Chinese workers, mostly male, then uh, there is there are constraints on that area, uh, food supply, resources, and then uh, there can be friction with the local population. This is one of the areas that we are researching and we are looking forward to have more uh, suggestion in terms of policy recommendation. Uh, in, in terms of defining the threat matrix, it strikes me that one of the issues also is the nature of the investing party. So, with other words, you're talking about state-owned enterprises that, for one, do not have the kind of shareholder uh, accountability that private enterprises have, but also because there's a partly political element to this, they're often uh, in, uh, willing to take on far, or have a far greater risk appetite. So with other words, areas of conflict, of instability, of fragile political and legal infrastructure, they are willing to uh, to invest where maybe private enterprises would not. Yes, this um, appetite for risk, uh, uh, it's a uh quite a problem in some respect because some of the time uh, is not only the area in which the investment uh, is going to be localized because probably is an area considered by western counterpart to higher risk but some of the time uh, is why uh, these companies state-owned enterprises uh, uh, decide to invest on that area. Sometimes, uh, as I mentioned, is not the final area of investment, but it's just the fact uh, to achieve uh, and to obtain uh, a preferred uh, loan from the Chinese uh, state uh, investment bank, China Development Bank, uh, Bank of China, uh, Exim Bank, and so on. So uh, sometimes uh, it's a national internal interest of the SOE just uh, to let uh, the, the company produce worker, uh, to have even more worker inside the company. And then they find an excuse to go out and invest out in a an area that is too high risky to invest, or they probably don't have the necessary 
capacity to evaluate that kind of risk. So this creates an appetite, as you mentioned correctly, for high risk. That is something that in mainland China is going to change. There is a lot more scrutiny, uh, not only from the bank side uh, or the credit insurance side, as I mentioned before, like Sinosure, but the central government body who are in charge of looking at this kind of project, basically NDRC and SASAC. Uh, In the past, uh, and sure in some way also in the future, uh, we can say that uh, uh, the government support for the Belt and Road Initiative uh, is a long-term guarantee that China will sustain uh, this infrastructure development and connectivity vision. But uh, at the same time, uh, the notion of uh, unreliable support of investment project is quite different if we look at it from a Chinese public context point of view and from a Western liberal uh, market perception. Uh, from a Western poor point of view, some of these projects uh, do not present a financial viability. Uh, they don't have uh, an expressed return uh, of investment, for example, in standard, while an SOE can see different kind of return. As I mentioned before, exporting industrial overcapacity, letting the worker uh, increase the production uh, locally that cannot be reversed uh, in the Chinese internal market uh, and, uh, and so on. And of course, uh, on the long term, uh, this uh, kind of project, if played good, could have uh, a political You talked about the uh, security risks involved in the way that, in a sense, the Chinese do business, with other words, reliance primarily on Chinese labor, often uh, reliance on Chinese um, raw materials. And the question that I've often had in my mind was whether or not the Chinese had really drawn or learned the lesson from Libya in 2011, Libya being the first time that the Chinese had to evacuate a large number of Chinese nationals, 35,000, because of the popular revolt in the country at the time. Uh, And that sort of was what what sparked the realization that China needs to uh, provide security for its people abroad as well as for its investments. But there was another aspect to the Libyan um, uh, event, and that was that in the immediate aftermath of the fall of uh, Libyan leader Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, the Libyans really said to the Chinese, you are at the bottom of our list because you continuously had and supported the Gaddafi regime. So with other words, the political risk that's involved in the policy of non-interference. Yes, into that, um, I think I can link with another example is another evacuation uh, quite successful made by the People Liberation Army Navy that was uh, in Yemen after. Uh, The problem was to evacuate uh, a large number of uh, Chinese workers overseas. A large number of workers, some of them uh, were not even accounted due to the difficulty of mapping them by the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. 
in this respect, uh, uh, one of uh, the most relevant issue that was in the past and is up to now, because China is not changing much the pattern of uh, investment that include uh, the use of Chinese worker and even Chinese material uh, on the area in which they are invested. And the, the, the issue, as I mentioned several times in the book, uh, is how to provide security for Chinese personnel and infrastructure along the Belt and Road. Uh, one of the realization, uh, as you mentioned, uh, was uh, with the fall of uh, Muhammad Gaddafi regime in Libya. But also one wake-up call, uh, a, a turning point in my position, was at the end of 2015, when uh, three Chinese uh, officials from uh, China Railway were killed in a terrorist attack in Bamako uh, by a local terrorist at the Radisson Blue Hotel, if I remind correctly. That was a wake-up call for Beijing to increase security without provoking any direct military intervention. So as you mentioned correctly, up to now, Beijing still stands by the decade-old non-interference principle. The principle of non-interference for China is one of the key five principles of peaceful coexistence that constitute the pillar of the Chinese foreign policy. Uh, beside being quite old, it's also changing. It's changing very slow uh, from something that now is being called, translated into English, in constructive involvement or even creative involvement. And definitely the evolution of the Belt and Road, uh, both on the maritime road and Eurasian-led mass, is already stretching the limit of the Chinese non-interference principle. In this respect, in my personal opinion, what China is doing with the Blue Helmet, especially with the UN security program in Africa and with the private security company, uh, it's a way to narrow the gap between Chinese economic diplomacy that is expanding with the Belt and Road and the Chinese current security capabilities that are still in a dire need of upgrade. And uh, back to the security dimension, uh, basically in my previous research, uh, I was trying to look uh, at two questions in regard how to provide security for Chinese personnel. The first question was, uh, is China and especially Chinese private security company an alternative to the PLA intervention. Is some problem like the one that you mentioned uh, in Libya or the one in Yemen is going uh, to erupt in the future and there are hundreds, not even thousands of Chinese workers involved in a national crisis. Is PLA going to intervene or there will be a private security aspect of it that uh, is not going to infringe the Chinese non-interference principle? And then most importantly, as a uh, we still see that these investments are spread from a public side with state-owned enterprises. If these private security are going to be loyal to Beijing or just protecting the agenda of the state-owned enterprises who hire them. You mentioned Pakistan, where obviously a lot of these issues play. Uh, and in extension of that, uh, the broader Islamic world, and the question, and I realize this is a tricky question, but nonetheless, uh, the question of whether or not Chinese policies domestically, particularly in the security area, 
and then again, particularly in Xinjiang, which is in many ways the starting point of uh, the Belt and Road across Eurasia, whether or not those policies uh, contribute to an enhanced security risk. Uh, into that, um, uh, looking uh, from the broader scope of the BRI, of course, uh, the uh, stabilization and sustainable development of Xinjiang is of primary importance, and not only for the Belt and Road itself, as uh, it starts uh, in the Kashgar area, going down uh, to the city port of Gwadar in Pakistan. CPEC uh, itself, uh, its part uh, is one of the flagship uh, project along the Belt and Road. Uh, CPEC yes, and it an economic corridor. Correct. And uh, it involves more than uh, 60 billion uh, planned investment. Uh, into that, uh, uh, the Xinjiang part plays a very important role. Uh, from my point of view, that is the one of private security, it's quite interesting because uh, a lot uh, of uh, mainland China's private security companies that are interested uh, to work uh, uh, in uh, Pakistan uh, supporting uh, the security of the Chinese infrastructure and Chinese personnel uh, are starting to employ um, Uyghur uh, due to the fact that they speak uh, in some area the, the local language. So for the private security area, there is uh, much of chance of uh, employment uh, in, in that field. From the other respect, uh, the internal policy, of course, it's reverberating uh, not only in Pakistan or Afghanistan, but overall in all Muslim world with uh, different uh, impact. Uh, having said that, uh, uh, the China-Pakistan economic corridor present basically in only one area all the kind of threat and risk uh, that the Belt and Road Initiative faces, ranging from uh, terrorist attack, uh, criminal violence uh, interested in kidnap and ransom uh, of wealthy Chinese, uh, uh, ISIS, uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, TIP, and uh, so on. It's all present uh, in, uh, in that area as a threat uh, to, uh, to the project. Uh, on this respect, uh, Islamabad uh, has already pledged uh, the intervention of 15,000 and more uh, soldiers to protect uh, Chinese uh, investment in the area, while uh, the Chinese private security firm are not allowed to carry weapon, but to act uh, as a kind of uh, security manager, something that definitely is going to speed up uh, in a way or in the other, the evolution process uh, of the Chinese uh, security firms. We'll come back to the private security company shortly. Um, I also want to look at one other broader aspect of the security risk. Where, and that plays, for example, strongly in Balochistan, the Pakistani province where the port of Gwadar is. Um, you talk in your, in your book about the fact that Chinese projects often exasperate longstanding border and other conflicts. And you mentioned, for example, with regard to, um, to Balochistan, if I'm not incorrect, opposition from India, but also from countries like Bhutan. 
Yes, in uh, in Tudet, uh, basically there are some cases, uh, not only from the Baluchi one, but also the Sindudesh uh, with uh, the um, Sindudesh Revolutionary Army, in which uh, China is not considered the main target, but is a byproduct of long-standing local problem that the Chinese investment uh, are just increasing in terms of size and scope, as China is being locally perceived uh, as a helper of the central government in Islamabad and the perception is that uh, the benefit of the Chinese investment are just going uh, to be shared among uh, Islamabad elite, then this is creating uh, not the supposed win-win narrative of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, but some resentment along the local population, especially now in the coastal area, uh, in the port of Qadar and the one in uh, in Karachi. Not long ago, the um, uh, local director for Pakistan of the biggest Chinese shipping line, Costco, was just assassinated there and probably was not criminal violence, but political violence. And then uh, there is uh, several other dimensions that have to be put uh, more in a local context. And this is uh, still missing when uh, the Chinese SOEs uh, are applying for investment abroad. Local consideration, local political culture, and uh, ongoing analysis of what the Chinese investment are creating in terms of local winner and loser, even in area uh, where there are no direct threat to the Chinese investment, the sudden inflow of Chinese money that is going to benefit only few people in the area against, for example, other tribe or other population or other area, then, of course, is going locally to create winner and loser, creating resentment. And this resentment can mutate quite fast into violence against the Chinese worker. Uh, all of this, of course, has led to the rise of um, Chinese private security companies. And one of the things that you note in the book is uh, that there is among Chinese companies, a lack of awareness of the threats and a lack of intelligence on the situation and also a lack of uh, experience and uh, in crisis management practice. And what that has meant is, uh, and that that is all the more significant because more often than not, the issue is also lack of safety mechanisms and you see that manifested in the fact that more often than not, deaths occur as a result of accident or disease rather than terrorism. Yes, uh, correct uh, into that uh, narrative. Uh, first of all, we have to say that uh, what, what I was researching in my previous book, China Private Army, uh, in mainland China, there are more uh, than 5,000 companies amounting of more than 3 million security officials. But most of these security officials are just security guards. So basically, they are stationed uh, in an area looking at the security of that area and are unarmed. Few of these 5,000 companies has already venturing outside, uh, working uh, in cooperation with international or with local security company. Several of these companies have already gained quite good experience. We are, we are talking about uh, a dozen compared to the 5,000. So uh, up to now, the market uh, for force in China is moving uh, and evolving very slowly from uh, security guard uh, that work at municipal 
municipal level to international companies that are capable and able to maneuver in a high-risk area. Uh, Pakistan is going in a way or another, as I mentioned earlier, to force this evolution to make it quite faster because uh, there is a need of uh, professionalization in terms of uh, intelligence gathering, use of proper intelligence, and of course, what it means uh, manage security risk. Several problems are related to the fact that up to now, the Chinese market is still uh, uh, considered in the security part uh, a bidding uh, who is going to get won by the lowest bidder. So the security services that are being proposed are quite below standard and only the few one in terms of state-owned enterprises who understand the value of the service are the one paying the good money, the real money for Chinese private security companies who have reached the standard in order to operate abroad. Uh, in this respect, uh, always, uh, as I mentioned before, there is the problem that uh, most of the company perceive Beijing as the last minute saver. In case of crisis, uh, Beijing will support. So there is no need uh, to pay expensive security procedure and measure upfront or even insurance. That's another thing that is quite important, the need for proper not only credit insurance, but an overall security insurance and special insurance uh, along the most high risk area in the Belt and Road, not only to ensure infrastructure, but only to ensure against kidnapping and ransom the life of uh, the Chinese and the local worker, as well as the proper policy uh, to uh, benefit the local population. Back to the security standard, uh, the, the market is changing. There is still the perception in Beijing that there is need of evolution of the security guard, not only in terms of law, new law are going to be enacted soon, but in terms of uh, security culture. By security culture, I mean uh, there is still uh, a very proper culture inside state state-owned enterprises and when they move abroad they use the same mindset that they apply into mainland China. So for example uh, most of the security company employ former PLA uh, officials uh, or PAP, uh, people other met police uh, uh, former uh, uh, official officer, sorry. So uh, they are still used to obey to the leader without making uh, any kind uh, of uh, contradiction if something is said or something in demand on the local area is going to, to need sudden change. But unfortunately, in the private security side initiative, is of primary importance from uh, even one security officer uh, with the use uh, to obey the, to the link uh, very structured of the SOE it is very difficult for the Chinese security company to change their mindset and to enact fast enough and to be flexible to the local need another problem as I mentioned to the fact that still it's a race to the bottom in terms of bidding for uh, the security contract is the need of talent you don't only need people who have military experience. There is a need of interpreter, of linguist, of intelligence official with capability to understand the, the local problem, as well as of expert in risk management and mitigation with corporate social responsibility capabilities. And of course, uh, with an economy uh, that is the Chinese economy, who is still under the new normal, increasing uh, at six point GDP per year, there is an ample offer of good job in mainland China. China, uh, 
And then the question is why someone have to go abroad in very high risk area, being Chinese with the chance to find a better paid job in Shanghai or in other big Chinese city. You uh, describe this development as a shift away from Western private security companies to what you term Chinese private security companies with Chinese characteristics. Can you sort of define what those Chinese characteristics are? Yes, as I mentioned before, uh, um, the new uh, Chinese private security environment uh, is different from the private military private security environment that we were used just a few years ago. Uh, and I refer especially to the deployment of private military security company during Iraq and Afghanistan conflict. Uh, from the Chinese point of view, there is no need for a support uh, to the military because there is no Chinese military involved abroad at the moment is a matter of securing uh, the life uh, and the infrastructure of Chinese investment abroad. And uh, in this respect, uh, there is a new market for force uh, and is the Chinese market for force. Of course, uh, the, the part uh, uh, Chinese with Chinese characteristic into that, as I mentioned, one is the local business culture. The other is the fact that most of the Chinese company prefer to engage Chinese company instead of international foreign company, basically for linguistic reason, they speak the same language. Then if we want to look a little bit deep down, there is also the consideration that a Chinese private security can protect in a better way the IPR or the company strategy and the long-term vision compared to the foreign one that can disclosure this information abroad. And up to now to the security, to the market for force, uh, there is not only the, the market for force and the offer from the Western counterpart for bidding to the Chinese market, but also by other international players, uh, such as the Russian private security forces. With other words, what Chinese state-owned enterprises need is something that goes beyond, far beyond the physical, securing physically uh, Chinese nationals' assets and investments abroad. Uh, correct. Uh, there is the need of more holistic approach uh, in considering first and foremost uh, what are the risks in investment in investing outside how non-financial risk overlap with financial risk and create a, a financial failure and project failure on the long term uh, as i mentioned before several uh, state-owned enterprises are already playing this game quite well while others who are for the first time adventuring outside the chinese border uh, always overestimated the fact that being successful in china doesn't automatically translate to being successful outside China. So a proper risk analysis, risk appraisal, risk mitigation uh, in terms of gathering uh, intelligence of the local culture, the local need, uh, the real threat matrix uh, during uh, the project appraisal and most important during uh, the project development uh, is going uh, to create uh, 
uh, an environment uh, that is going to produce benefit not only financial terms for the SOE who invest there or the Chinese private company and SMEs that follow along, but most uh, most important for the, the overall stakeholder who are involved locally with uh, the Chinese investment. If uh, this uh, risk mitigation analysis uh, and mechanism is not uh, well tailored, then uh, the problem are going to be extremely serious. And it not only means uh, financial problem, but it could mean uh, environmental degradation and at the end, even loss of human life. And yet, you know, despite the this explosion in the number of uh, Chinese private security companies, we're seeing a continued uh, dependence on Western or non non Chinese uh, security companies, including one Russian company, because of uh, the lack of expertise, the lack of skill, but also because uh, Chinese nationals are barred from carrying weapons. Uh, correct. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, it's an evolutionary process. Uh, this is changing. It's even changing pretty fast, uh, but it's going to take, uh, in my personal opinion, uh, at least several years, if not even a decade, to have a professional Chinese-only private security company moving abroad. In this respect, uh, again, in my personal opinion, uh, it's quite interesting the fact that uh, while there is this need for upgrading capabilities and for professionalization from the Chinese side, always there is uh, a huge offer. Uh, from the Western counterpart to this demand, not only in terms uh, of international company providing security, providing analysis and so on, but also in terms of standard. Uh, Again, in my opinion now, it's the right time uh, in which uh, Western counterpart uh, can provide and be uh, the main actor in support the internationalization of the Chinese private security firm. For example, there is the Montreux document spearheaded by the ICOCA, who is the International Code of Conduct Association based in Geneva that can support the evolution in terms of standard, giving clear guidelines. United Nations also can be one of the supporters in providing tools, uh, guidelines, uh, and uh, internationalization uh, with standard for uh, the security firm, as well as uh, to the state-owned enterprises in the way they can react uh, to to crisis along the UN standard. And even from the United States point of view, there is the ISOA, who is the local association of the security sector, who can provide guidelines and cooperation and benefit with their member uh, to the Chinese counterpart. The biggest problem now is that uh, the Chinese security with Chinese characteristic, uh, it's evolving. If we are not able to shape this evolution in sustainable term, then uh, the, the problem that we result uh, without lack of professionalization of the Chinese sector can create incident along the Belt and Road that are not only going to be paid by Beijing, but all the stakeholders interested into that. In this whole world of private security, we've seen with the uh, emergence of the Frontier Services Group, uh, the return of Eric Prince, notorious of days of uh, Blackwater, 
when uh, he was accused or his organization was accused of having killed um, a fair number of civilians in Iraq. Um, you describe in the book the rise of um, Eric Prince again, as well as the fact that in China, the perception of Eric Prince and of what happened in Iraq is a very different one. On to that, uh, basically, the, the part uh, on uh, FSG and involvement uh, of the founder of the former Blackwater company, uh, private military security, Eric Prince, with China, uh, is more detailed in my book, uh, China Private Army. Uh, in the book dedicated uh, to uh, the part uh, that is played by FSG, Frontier Service Group, uh, uh, is a joint venture between China, CITIC, uh, and uh, Eric Prince, uh, who is the former uh, founder and CEO of Blackwater Company. Uh, as uh, you just mentioned, there is a different Chinese perspective. Uh, as I say, uh, it's not uh, the different perspective on what you call it is a Nizur Square incident in which uh, several Iraqi civilians have been killed by contractors under uh, Blackwater name. Uh, in China, uh, in the security area from some companies, not all the, the security company and not all the security practitioner, Eric Prince uh, uh, company, previously uh, Blackwater, renamed to Academy and now XE, and now I think it's under uh, the Constellis group, uh, the pitch made by Eric Prince that nobody died under his uh, protection uh, was a matter of professionalization that was uh, at the time and by the time I say more than one years ago was very well welcome in Beijing. FSG then evolved doing some training with uh, Beijing training school. There is a mushrooming of training school for security not only in the capital city Beijing but also in area like Shanghai and Shenzhen in which there is a training of uh, an armed official giving them a more professional involvement in what is uh, security risk management. Uh, of course, uh, uh, FSG is not the only one. There are several other international companies based in China or working internationally with Chinese. But the fact uh, that uh, Mr. Prince attracted so much uh, media attention during his involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan, and even now uh, with his involvement uh, in uh, partial involvement uh, in other area uh, of the globe uh, than all the media reflector talking about China and private security also pointed in uh, in his direction. But then again, uh, private military security and private security uh, has been on stage uh, always. Uh, it's just a matter of how much you want to look into deep and to find the data and who are the, the real player. The part of FSG was, again, uh, more on the news just to the personality of uh, Eric Prince and to the fact that, that uh, even after the sellout of uh, Blackwater, he has been able to be in the game up to now. You also mentioned that in academic circles, there is an argument being made that the Blackwater model does not fit Chinese needs. Yes, that um, claim was made by some colleague, uh, local colleague, during uh, several conferences that we had uh, uh, in the last years uh, in, uh, in China. Uh, and the fact uh, that one was the 
overrated media uh, attention that was devoted uh, uh, to the to that part of security the second uh, is that uh, there is uh, no chinese involvement uh, in war zone area and there is no need for uh, private military security support uh, and then some part uh, of the overall machism that surrounded the blackwater uh, uh, guidelines, how they react uh, in case of crisis, uh, uh, especially in Iraq, is something that uh, for some uh, uh, Chinese security academician was uh, too much uh, uh, against what is uh, the Chinese non-interference principle and to have a very low security footprint while moving outside China. Um, on another note, you uh, argue that the rise of the Chinese private security companies is fostering innovation and adaptation of new technologies. Can you expand on that a bit? Yes. Uh, um, on this, um, there is always the perception that private security is uh, some guy armed with a Kalashnikov uh, in front uh, of a wall protecting a gate. Uh, that's something that is changing. Uh, what is most need now is, uh, as I mentioned several times uh, during this interview, the need for a security appraisal in terms of intelligence, uh, in terms of adapting to the local culture, local language, local habit, but also the new technology. And the new technology uh, are mostly are aerial drone reconnaissance, uh, private use of drone, and not only the very uh, expensive and difficult to maneuver uh, drone, but also other kind of drone and blimps that can be used to gather security data and uh, to uh, alert in case uh, of uh, attack or probable uh, uh, incident that are going to be avoided just to the fact that this technology that now are quite cheap and broadly available uh, can be used for the security aspect. Which leads us into a, a very different area, uh, which is the question of cybersecurity and the role that private security companies may or may not play in that. Oh, I don't think it's a different area. It's very linked together and um, some company who have uh, offering service in mainland China uh, in order to avoid the growing competition of the sector are already offering in mainland China cybersecurity. It is a service from cybersecurity range from the basic security uh, to cyber forensic to try to find a hacker who are trying to breach the company or data theft made inside the company. Now, these companies who already have these capabilities or are interested to acquire these capabilities are merging with the Chinese software security company. And probably, in my opinion, uh, if not the coming year, but at least in the next year, are going to offer their service to the Chinese company abroad. Why I mean that? Because in several areas, not only the high-risk area, but other areas in which the Chinese company invests, let's say, in power grid, uh, energy-related aspect or area, the merchant acquisition aspect of the investment is going to involve cybersecurity. Up to now, this problem has been a little bit undervalued, but in the near future, it's not only 
going to be a serious problem, especially with companies investing in foreign bank, in foreign market, uh, even if they want to develop uh, a new fintech uh, product uh, related to blockchain technology, but also to the company who absorb uh, other kind of very simple brick and mortar company that have data that have to be protected. Chinese uh, cybersecurity law, uh, it's very uh, detailed in how Chinese company who uh, mine or who have data about uh, China interest or Chinese people are obliged to protect their data. Otherwise, they are liable. So these new uh, security company who are upgraded in giving cybersecurity service, uh, they are going to be at the front line of this problem and they are going to be the first to benefit, uh, economically speaking, of this new kind of security service. Definitely the price and the range of uh, money involved is not there yet at the moment, but as I mentioned before, in a few years, it's going to be there. Um, one of the issues that you cite as um, hampering the development of uh, the private security industry in China is the fact that there's no clear government address to which one can turn to. With other words, it's not clear who within the Chinese government is in charge of regulating, um, assisting uh, the private security industry. Yes, in this, uh, it's one of the main problem. Uh, if we look at private security going outside China, inside China, the guideline and the rules since 1993 to the 2010 new uh, framework of work are very clear who is in charge and what the company have to do. But as soon as the company cross the Chinese border, then uh, there is a uh, uh, an increased amount of Chinese uh, actors that are all involved and basically they all claim some kind of paternity in devising the rules and controlling the private security. And among these actors, we can see the National Development Reform Commission and DRC who give the guidelines and approval of Invest Outside, SASAC who is in charge of the state-owned enterprises uh, uh, investing outside China, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that itself have to count and to take care of the Chinese national abroad, Ministry of Defense, and we can keep counting. The problem is that as soon as one of these ministries take the lead and take the overall paternity of the new framework of law and about the new guidelines, this is going to benefit the overall BRI security dimension. But again, this is one of the problems that it was underline at the beginning when the Belt and Road was launched is not only on the security aspect of the Belt and Road, but the big question uh, at the 2013 after presidency uh, speech at an Azerbaijan university in Kazakhstan launching the vision of the Belt and Road, the question was who is in charge of the Belt and Road? Is there any one window shop in which someone can refer to in order to have the clear guidelines? And it's something that started to come out with a white paper in 2015 but then again, there are several actors involved into that. And in specific, in the private security term, up to now, there is not still this one window shop in which one private security company in China or a foreign private security company can address all the problem in just one area. Alex, 
the whole issue of the Belt and Road Initiative and the security aspects of it in the broadest sense is a subject that we could discuss for hours, and it's fascinating. But unfortunately, we're slowly coming to the end of um, this podcast. But before I let you go, perhaps you can describe what you are working on now and where you're going with this whole thing. Yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, basically, I'm moving uh, uh, not only uh, my focus on a private security concern, uh, still uh, the research is based uh, on non-financial threat uh, along the Belt and Road Initiative, and I'm looking uh, at how uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises, considering their own peculiar public value, can uh, mitigate risk, uh, uh, and can afford to uh, make new uh, tools for uh, appraisal, risk appraisal and risk management in several specific areas. Uh, my area of research now mostly, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, Central Asia, but also I'm looking what uh, Chinese companies are doing uh, in the Middle East and North Africa area, because in that area there is still a footprint that is state-owned enterprises, but there is also a very important part of investment that is led by Chinese uh, private company. And uh, these companies have been there for a while, and they developed their own mechanism of survival in, uh, in that area. So basically, I'm trying to study the impact of this non-financial threat on the financial reality of the investment. Finally, can you describe whether or not there is a difference in impact on the part of state-owned companies and of privately-owned companies, for example, in the Middle East and North Africa? So you mentioned that we are running out of time. I think we will need more time to discuss this than to discuss the overall Belt and Road. <laughs> Having said that, uh, um, the line between uh, SOEs and private sector in China uh, is quite straightforward in terms, uh, in legal terms. But then if we have to look at the evolution of the private sector coming uh, from the public sector, then of course there are still now a lot of overlapping area in which uh, personnel from SOE is borrowed uh, to the public company or to the private company, sorry, or in which private company can leverage cooperation with SOE in order to have uh, preferential line of credit that in other areas are considered out of uh, market line of credit. And uh, in this respect, uh, I think the, the question is, is very open, especially in the ICT sector. Alex, as much as I would like to pursue this, I have to thank you for being on the show. This was a fascinating discussion. Thank you and goodbye. James, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Have a good day. Just 